Section 15 of Birds and Nature, Volume 8, Number 3, October 1900. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Domestic Fowl The writers of antiquity used the term fowl to include all the members of the bird tribe, and in some cases the young of other animals. Feathered creatures, no matter what their habits, were not called birds. Neither were they separated into classes other than the fowls of the air, fowls of the sea, fowls of the earth, and similar descriptive divisions. In the 17th and the earlier part of the 18th century, the word fowl was applied to any large feathered animal, and the term bird to those of less size. In early times, the word bird was used in the sense of brood and included the young of all animals. In an early act of the Parliament of Scotland, we find the expression wolf birdis, referring to the very young wolf. At the present time, the term fowl, in its wider sense, is generally used to include all the forms of farm poultry, both when living and when prepared for food. More specifically, it is applied to the domestic cock and hen, or, as they are more familiarly called, chickens, gallus domesticus. The word chicken appropriately belongs to the common fowl when under one year of age, yet it is used to indicate those of any breed and of any age between birth and maturity. In this connection, it is of interest to note that in the English language the common fowl has no distinctive name. The term hen, frequently used, should be applied only to the female of this and other domestic fowls. The progenitor of the common fowl is generally conceded to be the red jungle fowl, Gallus ferruginius or Bankiva, though there are three other wild species, all oriental. This species is a native of India, a part of China, the adjacent islands, and the Philippines. Its habits are diversified, for we are told it may be found in lofty forests and in the dense thickets as well as in bamboo jungles and when cultivated land is near its haunts, it may be seen in the fields, after the crops are cut, in straggling parties of from ten to twenty. This wild species closely resembles the breed of poultry fanciers call the black-breasted game. But the crow of the wild cock is not as loud or as prolonged as that of the tame one. All the evidence that we possess seems to indicate that this wild fowl was once domesticated in Burma. The Chinese, as indicated by tradition, received their poultry from Burma as early as 1400 B.C. Records show that about 1200 or 800 B.C., as some authorities hold, the eating of the tame fowl was forbidden, though the use of the wild fowl as food was permitted. It seems evident that the fowl reached Europe after domestication, about the 6th century before the time of Christ. It continued westward, for Julius Caesar found it in Britain at the time of the conquests. Both the wild and the tame fowls are mentioned by the early Latin and Greek writers. Homer writing about 900 B.C. does not refer to the fowl, but it is mentioned by Aristophanes at a date near 500 B.C., it is of interest to know that the domesticated form is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It is said that some of the pagan tribes living at the present time on the east coast of Africa have a marked aversion to domestic fowl. 
This may account for the absence of any representation of the fowl on the ancient Egyptian monuments, though it was represented on the Babylonian cylinders about the 6th or 7th century before Christ. In this connection, it should be mentioned that many other people, notably the natives of the islands adjacent to the Australian continent and some of the Indian tribes of South America, show a strong dislike to the domestic bird as food. By selection, both natural and by man, many breeds have been produced. Dr. Charles Darwin says, Sufficient materials do not exist for tracing the history of the separate breeds. About the commencement of the Christian era, Columella mentions a five-toed fighting breed and provincial breeds, but we know nothing about them. He also alludes to dwarf fowls, but these cannot have been the same with our bantams, which were imported from Japan into bantam in Java. A dwarf fowl, probably the true bantam, is referred to in an old Japanese encyclopedia, as I am informed. In the Chinese encyclopedia, published in 1596, but compiled from various sources, some of high antiquity, seven breeds are mentioned. The number of breeds is very indefinite. Darwin enumerates 13, including many subbreeds. The American Poultry Association recognizes more than 30, with several varieties of some of them. The game or fighting breed more closely resembles the wild form of India than do any of the others. The Japanese, so noted for their wonderful development of dwarfed trees, are also the originators of the smallest fowls, the bantams. Another interesting breed is called jumpers, or creepers. Their legs are so short that they are compelled to move by jumping. The wild hen lays from 8 to 12 white eggs in nests, seldom of better construction than a few dried leaves or grass scratched together in a secluded spot. It is said that to every hen belongs an individual peculiarity in the form, color, and size of her egg, which never changes during her lifetime so long as she remains in health, and which is as well known to those who are in the habit of taking her produce as the handwriting of their nearest acquaintance. We are told that the tame hen raises a brood of physically stronger offspring when allowed to select her own nesting place in some locality with natural surroundings. The wild and the tame fowl alike eat a variety of foods, both animal and vegetable, but prefer the latter. With reference to the habits and characteristics of the interesting domestic bird of our farmyards and orchards, no words can describe them more aptly than those so delightfully written by Gail Hamilton, when she says, A chicken is beautiful and round and full of cunning ways, but he has no resources for an emergency. He will lose his reckoning and be quite out to sea, though only ten steps from home. He never knows enough to turn a corner. All his intelligence is like light, moving only in straight lines. He is impetuous and timid, and has not the smallest presence of mind or sagacity to discern between friend and foe. He has no confidence in any earthly power that does not reside in an old hen. Her cluck will be followed to the last ditch, and to nothing else will he give heed. I'm afraid that the interpreter was putting almost too fine a point upon it when he had Christiana and her children into another room where was a hen and chickens and bid them observe a while. So one of the chickens went to a trough to drink, and every time she drank, she lifted up her head and her eyes toward heaven. 
See, said he, what this little chick doth and learn of her to acknowledge whence your mercies come by receiving them with looking up. Doubtless the chick lifted her eyes toward heaven, but a close acquaintance with the race would put anything but acknowledgment in the act. A gratitude that thanks heaven for favors received, and then runs into a hole to prevent any other person from sharing the benefit of these favors, is a very questionable kind of gratitude, and certainly should be confined to the bipeds that wear feathers. Yet if you take away selfishness from a chicken's moral makeup, and fatuity from his intellectual, you have a very charming creature left. For apart from their excessive greed, chickens seem to be affectionate. They have sweet social ways. They huddle together with fond, caressing chatter and chirp soft lullabies. Their toilet performances are full of interest. They trim each other's bills with great thoroughness and dexterity, much better indeed than they dress their own heads, for their bungling, awkward little claws make sad work of it. It is as much as they can do to stand on two feet, and they naturally make several revolutions when they attempt to stand on one. Nothing can be more ludicrous than their early efforts to walk. They do not really walk. They sight their object, waver, balance, decide, and then tumble forward, stopping all in a heap as soon as the original impetus is lost, generally some way ahead of the place to which they wished to go. It is delightful to watch them as drowsiness films their round, bright, black eyes, and the dear old mother croons them under her ample wings, and they nestle in perfect harmony. How they manage to bestow themselves with such limited accommodations, or how they manage to breathe in a room so close, it's difficult to imagine. They certainly deal a staggering blow to our preconceived notions of the necessity of oxygen and ventilation but they make it easy to see whence the Germans derive their fashion of sleeping under feather beds. But breathe and bestow themselves they do. The deep mother breast and the broad mother wings take them all in. They penetrate her feathers and open for themselves unseen little doors into the mysterious, brooding, beckoning darkness. But it is long before they can arrange themselves satisfactorily, they chirp and stir and snuggle, trying to find the softest and warmest nook. Now an uneasy head is thrust out, and now a whole tiny body, but it soon re-enters in another quarter, and at length the stir and chirp grows still. You see only a collection of little legs as if the hen were a banyan tree, and presently even they disappear. She settles down comfortably, and all are wrapped in a slumberous silence. As I sit by the hour watching their winning ways and see all the steps of this sleepy subsidence, I can but remember that outburst of love and sorrow from the lips of him who, though he came to earth from a dwelling place of ineffable glory, called nothing unclean because it was common, found no homely detail too homely or too trivial to illustrate the Father's love, but from the birds of the air the fish of the sea, the lilies of the field, the stones in the street, the foxes in their holes, the patch on the coat, the oxen in the furrow, the sheep in the pit, the camel under his burden, drew lessons of divine pity and patience, of heavenly duty and delight. End of section 15